Good afternoon. It's such an encouragement and a joy to be here today. It's very encouraging to have many visitors with us. God knew what he was doing when he had designed the assembly uh, for, for our edification to be stirred up to love and good works. Um, there's already been much teaching and admonishing that we've done together in those songs that we just sang. But I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8, the passage that we read just a moment ago. I want to focus in on the question that Jesus asks here in verse 37. It says, For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the questions that Jesus asks here in verse 36 and verse 37 are intended to be rhetorical questions. Uh, he's not actually trying to find out the answer here. The answer should be evident to us. But these questions, instead of being designed to get an answer, are designed to make us think about what the answers are. That's what rhetorical questions do. And so what Jesus is intending to do here is to get us to consider the value of our souls. How do you measure the value of a soul? We, we understand in the, the business world uh, how we decide to some extent what the value of some merchandise is. Well, what, what was the value of the, the materials that went into it? What was the, the value of the labor that was involved in putting it together? What is the, the demand in the market for it? And then we you know, set a price to try to determine the approximate value that it, it should be worth and somebody might want to, to purchase it. But how do you measure the value of something non-physical, something spiritual? How do you measure the value of our souls created in the image of God. And that's what I want us to consider from the scriptures today. And I think there's going to be two primary areas of application that Eric already mentioned to some extent. First and foremost, each and every one of us here has a soul. Has a soul that was breathed into us by God. A part of himself. A soul imprinted with God's image. What's the value of my soul? What am I willing to give in exchange for my soul? And second of all, not only do we have souls, but every single human being walking on the face of the earth that has ever lived has a soul made in the image of God. What is the value of the souls around us? And what are we willing to give in exchange for their soul? That they might know the Lord. Well, here in Mark chapter 8, we have our first answer. Read verse 36 with me. Again, this is a rhetorical question being asked. Jesus in verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What's the answer? This is a rhetorical question. The obvious answer that we're intended to give is nothing. It doesn't profit a man anything. If he were to gain the entire world and forfeit his own soul. Can you think about that for a moment? What, what would it be like to gain the entire world? All the riches, all the gold, all the jewels, every bank on the face of the earth is now under your control. Every nation is now under your control. You have all authority. You snap your fingers and it gets done. You have gained the whole world, but you've lost your soul. Is it worth it? No way. No way. Not at all. Even a child knows the answer to that one. 
No. It doesn't matter how much we gain in this life, how much physical we may gain. If we lose our soul, it's not worth it. One bit. Not even close. What what does it mean to forfeit your own soul? When you look at verse 35, as Jesus leads up to that question, he says in verse 35, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. What is he talking about there? The word life there is actually the same word. The word soul that we use later in uh, verse 36 and verse 37. And the idea here uh, is not just our physical life. Now, he uses it in both ways in that passage in verse 35. But it's not just talking about our physical life here on earth. It's talking about our, our spiritual life. The point that he's making in verse 35 is that we can lose our physical life and yet save our spiritual life, our eternal life. And yet, we can try to hold on to our physical life and ultimately lose both. Forfeiting our soul is not just talking about physical death. Forfeiting our soul is talking about an eternal death, a second death that we've talked about in Revelation. Not a separation of the soul from the body, but a separation of the soul from the source of life, the source of all things good, God himself. What profit will gaining the whole world be to us in eternity when our souls have passed on and this world is destroyed. It doesn't matter if I owned every kingdom of the world, every bank, every pleasure was at my command. Those things are all going to pass away. They're ultimately going to leave me empty. And at the end of the day, if I have not given my soul to the Lord, I'm going to spend eternity devoid of all things good. Not one thing good. No comfort, no joy, no peace, no hope. But eternally, forfeiting my soul, separating my soul from God. Most of us here have probably played the game Monopoly, right? What's the point of that game? What's the goal of that game? You're intended to try to get as much money as you can and to bankrupt everybody else. Isn't that just the the greatest goal that you can think of for a game? (laughs) And yet, when you're done with the game and you've gained everything and everybody else is bankrupt and you have all the property, you have all the wealth, what do you do? Well, you won. Good job. Put everything back in the box. You close the lid. Did it profit you anything? Can you go now take that money and that property and and, and spend it in real life? No. Brother, that's like our life here on earth. Real life is not just physical, it's spiritual. And at the end of the day, no matter how much we've gained, we're going to have to put the lid on the box. It doesn't matter if we've gained the whole world. If we've lost our soul, we've lost everything. We see a man learn this lesson in Luke chapter 12. Learn this lesson too late. In Luke chapter 11, we have what is sometimes known as, uh, Luke chapter 12 rather, what is sometimes known as the parable of the rich fool. And here in Luke 12, starting in verse 
16, it says, and he told a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do Shall I ha- uh, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Here's a man who thought that he had much stored up for his soul. Do you notice that there? He, he, he's speaking to himself and he says, soul... You have many goods laid up for many years to come. It seems kind of a, a, a weird way to talk to himself. But, but why do you see the, the word soul show up in this passage multiple times? I think part of the point is that this man's soul didn't possess any of that. And in fact, when his soul was required of him, how much of that did his soul get to take with it? Not any. Now, his body possessed a lot of that, but his soul didn't own any of it. And so when his soul was required of him, all those temporal things of this world were taken away. You'll never see a a hearse with a U-Haul on the back. It just doesn't work that way. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 15 and 16 says, Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to whom would toil Uh, for the wind. We came naked into this world and naked we shall return. Doesn't matter how much we've gained, the box uh, is going to have to be put away. Matthew 6, verse 19 and 20 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and seal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Even in this life, even before the game is over, even while we're, we're still experiencing the, the joys and the pleasures of this physical existence, those things fade away. And they fade away quickly. Even in our few short years here on earth, think about all of the possessions that you enjoy that quickly pass away. Think about your, your smartphone, your computer. How long does it take for that to be outdated and for that hardware no longer to handle the software that has been updated? Well, very quickly, that, that, that top-of-the-line computer is not going to last. What about your car? You know, how long is your car going to You get a nice new car and you can drive it for you know, maybe, a, maybe even a few hundred thousand miles. But very quickly, it's going to start breaking. You're going to have to take it in for for oil changes. You're going to have to replace different parts of the car. It doesn't last. No matter how great and wonderful it was, even within this life, we see things quickly corroding away. We place very high value on materials that are most resistant to corrosion or tarnish. Uh, Precious metals like gold. Diamonds, you know, things that that don't tarnish as easily. 
how much more value should we put on our souls that are incorruptible? We must lay up treasure for our souls, not for our bodies. Lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Even after this life is over, those are things that we can still possess by God's grace. And that's the point of verse 21 here in Luke 12. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, brethren, our souls are more valuable than all the riches that this world can hold. We need to live that way, though. Sometimes we, we understand that intellectually, but that's not the way we live from day to day. We're so distracted by the here and now that we forget how, how utterly useless those things are in eternity. And along with that, we need to recognize that our soul is immeasurably more valuable than our body. I mean, to turn back to Mark, we'll go one chapter further in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 43. Here Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. Verse 45, If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Verse 47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's better to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye, one hand, and one foot than to be cast into hell with our whole healthy body. The body is expendable. The soul is not. You know, if, if you were on a, a boat on a stormy sea and you're afraid that the ship is going to, to sink and you need to start lightening the load, what, what kind of things are you going to throw off? Well, first, you're going to throw off the most expendable things, right? The things that, that are unnecessary. And you're going to save the things that you might still need on that voyage. And then as time goes on, eventually... As you're simply trying to survive, you're going to throw off everything except yourself, except your life, right? Brethren, sometimes that's how our spiritual warfare is. When we're threatened to be sunk, we need to be willing to get rid of whatever it takes that our soul and our relationship with the Lord might be preserved. What's most valuable we need to keep that perspective. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. How, how do you think everlasting destruction compares with momentary destruction? There's no comparison, brethren. Now, whatever we have to suffer in this life, is immeasurably less significant than the glory that awaits us or the torment that awaits us, being separated from God. We're often a lot more in tune to the dangers of the flesh, though. If somebody came in today with a gun and put it up to your head, you're going to feel a much greater sense of panic 
than if your soul is in danger. Often when our souls are in danger, when we're not where we need to be spiritually, when we're going through temptation, well, yeah, I I guess I probably need to do better. When my flesh is in danger, I'll I'll do anything that it takes to preserve that. We, We need to switch that around. That's what Jesus is saying there in Matthew chapter 10. We don't, shouldn't fear he who can kill the body, but he who can kill body and soul. When our soul is in danger, that should be something that we're much more serious about, much more focused on, much more concerned about. We need to be more in tune to the well-being of our soul. If, if my family was trapped inside a burning building, I wouldn't rest until they were safe. No, I, I, I do whatever it takes to help them. What about when their souls are in danger, though? Well, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll talk to them about that eventually. And, and certainly I recognize we need to leave things in the Lord's hands. We need to pray for, for the right opportunity. But it shouldn't be the kind of thing that, well, we, we can just kind of set that on the back burner. No, the, the well-being of their soul is immeasurably more important than the well-being of their body. And that's the way we need to think about it. Paul the Apostle had his priorities straight in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, he says, I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. When he says, I discipline my body there, the, the literal word is to, uh, it comes from two Greek words meaning to hit under the eye, or to hit the eye. To give a black eye. So he's saying, I'm, I'm beating my body into subjection here. Paul's flesh, what, what do you think Paul looked like as a person? You, you, you read about all that he went through in a passage like 2 Corinthians 11. He was stoned and left for dead. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. Well, his flesh wasn't going to be the, the prettiest thing. But that's not what was important to Paul. He was disciplining his flesh, bringing it into subjection that his spirit might be in the right relationship with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. It didn't matter how ragged and beaten down his physical body was in the end. Only that his soul was prepared for eternity. And notice Paul's attitude not only towards himself, but towards others. If you want to turn for a moment over to 2 Corinthians, As Paul talks about his experiences that he had suffered in service of the Lord here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, notice what he says at the very end here. He's talked, starting in verse 24, about receiving lashes, being beaten, being stoned, being shipwrecked. Down in verse 28, he says, apart from such external things, There's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Paul put on par and perhaps above all these sufferings that he's dealing with physically, his concern for the well-being of his brethren. You know, which one would you rather suffer? Would you rather be beaten or experience deep concern for your brethren. I think most of us would say, well, I'll forgo the the, the beating. In Paul's mind, those are on par. 
he is deeply moved and, and tormented by the thought of, of, of people falling away from the Lord, people being separated from the Lord. Paul's not just focused on the physical. He's focused on the spiritual, the spiritual well-being of his own soul, but certainly the spiritual well-being of others. We need to cultivate that type of attitude, being more in tune to the spiritual condition and spiritual well-being of ourselves and those around us than simply the physical dangers or the physical suffering. But in talking about the whole world, talking about our body in comparison with our soul, uh, we've talked about how we should view the value of our souls, but I, I want us to transition to now consider how does God view your soul? How does God view my soul? What is he willing to give in exchange? What's the price that he's put on our souls? First of all, I think we need to recognize that in God's mind, your soul, my soul, is worth all that he possesses. Look in Luke chapter 15 with me. Here Jesus tells a parable to illustrate his attitude towards the loss, towards the soul separated from him. In Luke 15, starting in verse 4, he says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. I tell you, that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. What does the shepherd do in this illustration? He leaves the ninety-nine. He leaves everything else that he possesses to go and search for that one lost sheep. And Jesus tells this parable to illustrate to us how important even one soul, even one sinner who is lost is to him. But how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus leave the 99? Jesus didn't say, well, I have 99 others. Yeah, that one was important, but hey, I'll I'll, I'll just take care of these. What is it that Jesus left? Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 talks about the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, not just in the cross itself, but leading up to the cross. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul writes, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. What attitude? Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now notice what's said there in verse 6. It says, though he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? Well, instead of grasping to his equality with God, his position in heaven with God, it says he didn't consider it a thing to be grasped. He let go of it. The very next phrase, he emptied himself. Now, while certainly Jesus is fully deity and at every point 
was fully deity, he also let go of some things to become fully man. Jesus didn't function here on earth as one who was omnipotent, as one who was omniscient. Uh, It says in Luke that he grew in wisdom and in stature uh, and in favor with God and men. You know, how how does somebody who is omniscient grow in wisdom? (laughs) Well, Jesus in becoming a man, while still being fully God, suspended some of his power and his position as God, let go of his home in heaven to experience need, to experience pain, to experience what we experience here in this life. He had a, a, a physical brain that developed and grew, just like ours does. Some of that's hard for us to grasp, but what we can say clearly from Philippians 2 is he, to a certain extent, let go of his equality with God. Think about it this way, and some of you may have heard this illustration before, but it's always helpful for me to think about. Imagine for you that you were in a car crash, and all of a sudden you lost all use of your arms and your legs. You are confined to a wheelchair. You could no longer feed yourself, no longer clothe yourself, no longer take care of yourself. Would you feel like you had lost a lot? I think any of us would feel a great sense of loss. But think about Jesus. Going from being in heaven with God, leaving that home to become a little child who couldn't feed himself, who couldn't clothe himself, who couldn't take care of himself. Do you think Jesus felt like he lost a lot? Jesus' sacrifice didn't begin when the nails were driven into his hands. Jesus' sacrifice began when he took on flesh and blood. And he experienced a life of, of need and suffering and pain. Ultimately, giving up his life upon the cross. And the greatest expression of his sacrifice so that we could be saved. And so Jesus viewed our souls as more valuable than remaining in heaven. Jesus was willing to leave that behind so that we could be saved. Why? Because we were important to him. Because he valued us that highly. And beyond that, in God's eyes, in the eyes of his grace, our souls are more valuable than the blood of Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, it says, but with precious blood as of lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, I, I feel that it's almost heretical or, or blasphemous to say that our souls are more valuable than Jesus' blood. Because we recognize that by inherent value, we cannot begin to deserve, can't even get close to deserve the value of Jesus' blood. But what we're saying here is that in the eyes of God's grace, he was willing to exchange the blood of Jesus for my soul. Not because I deserved it, but God was willing to see my value as higher than Jesus' blood.
That's what he paid on my behalf. That was the price that he placed upon my soul. Isaiah chapter 53 describes to us the suffering that Jesus went through on our behalf. It says in verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The cause of Jesus' love, he counted us worthy of every lash. Every taunt of the crowd, every beating, every slap, every insult, every thorn, every nail. And the guilt of our sins upon his heart. We were worth it to him. We were worth dying for. I want you to notice what's said in this passage in verse 10 and 11. Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Can you fathom that? That God was pleased to crush him? That it was the good pleasure of the Lord that would prosper in Jesus dying upon the cross? That he was satisfied to see Jesus die there? How could God say such a thing? How could he be pleased with his son dying? Because what did it accomplish? Because what it accomplishes for you and for me. God was pleased not because of, of what went on there. Not because of the suffering and the pain and the shed blood. He was pleased because of the offspring. Because of those who could be saved, who could be redeemed, who could be in fellowship with him once again because of that sacrifice. Well, the cross is certainly something of great sorrow and grief. By God's grace, it's something of great rejoicing as well. We can rejoice that we are able to be children of God. God was pleased to pay that price as valuable as it is. Because he cares for our souls. How valuable is your soul? God was willing to pay the blood of his own son. Imagine for a moment, if you think about the idea of redemption, as we talked about being redeemed by Jesus' blood, uh, the primary context in which people are redeemed is the context of slavery. Imagine for a moment that we stand miserable as slaves on the devil's auction block. We're beaten down, we're weak, we're worthless, we're dead and rotting in our sins. And Satan, our accuser, calls out and says, who would want such worthless trash? And God comes and he says, I do. In fact, I want to pay the blood of my own son to purchase that slave. 
That's what redemption means, brethren. It means that God saw us in our sins, in our brokenness, in our death. And He said, you are valuable. You have my, my spirit, my image imprinted upon you. And I want that back. I'm willing to pay any price to get it back. To cleanse it, to remold it, to remake it. How valuable is a human soul? In God's eyes, it's the most valuable thing ever created. It's worth dying for. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? God gave the blood of his son. What are we willing to give? What about your soul today? Have you thought about its condition before God? By God's grace, there is nothing that you possess that comes close to the value of your soul. It doesn't matter how much you gain. It doesn't matter how far you advance in your career, how many vacations you're able to take, how cushy of a retirement you enjoy. None of that matters one bit if you lose your eternal soul. Jesus was willing to give his life so that your soul could be saved. But he calls you to respond. He calls you to give your life as a living sacrifice in return. To surrender fully to him. To bury your old life of sin in the waters of baptism. And by his grace, you can raise out of those waters no longer in sin and in death, but you can be a new creation. You can be clean and pure and holy. Have God's image reformed within your life. You can reflect his glory that you have fallen short of. And you can have a hope of eternity in his presence. You don't have to forfeit your soul. You can spend all eternity free from death and sorrow and crying and pain in the presence of the source of all things good. What about you today? If you recognize that in any way you're not in a right relationship with the Lord, don't leave these doors without making it right with him. He's calling you. He wants you. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, please let us know at this time as we sing together.